This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's take a quick business trip to the Cayman Islands. We stop at a five-story office building on the beach. This is Ugland House, home to more than 18,000 companies, at least on paper. It's also where Colorado lawmakers point to when they try to paint a picture of a so-called tax haven. These havens are in places like the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Switzerland, even Singapore, where taxes are low or non-existent for foreign companies. Laws in these jurisdictions encourage secrecy in financial dealings, and with some creativity, companies can shift profits to their subsidiaries in these places and avoid paying some taxes taxes here in the states. State Representative Dickie Lee Hollinghorst of Boulder is the Democratic Speaker of the House. She told CPR News recently that one priority for her party is to address these tax havens in other countries. We have corporations in this state who don't pay a penny of income tax in this state and send their profits overseas. We figure that that would be at least $150 million in additional taxes in Colorado. Longmont Democrat Representative Mike Foote sponsored a bill to address tax havens and the companies that use them and operate here in Colorado last year. It failed, but he planned to reintroduce a similar bill this session. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oxfam America, a nonprofit that deals with poverty and injustice, released a report this month that asserts tax havens contribute to global wealth inequality. And the president of Oxfam America told The New York Times this type of tax dodging, quote, deprives governments of the resources needed to provide vital public services. Who is being affected here in Colorado by corporate tax havens? We all are. Well, first of all, we pay taxes. Small businesses and other businesses that don't have the accountants and lawyers to come up with these tax havens pay taxes. And we're all affected because there's less revenue for roads and schools and other services the government provides. Don't small businesses uh, have the option to set up tax havens? Wouldn't that kind of even the playing field a bit? Well, they could if they had an army of lawyers and accountants that could do that. There's also a high setup cost. The countries like Cayman Islands and Bermuda, they, they charge a high setup cost assess very little tax on the back end. So it's difficult for a small business to do it if they were inclined to do it. Many wouldn't do it. They wouldn't think about it. Um, They wouldn't think that it's right. But theoretically, they could. How many companies then are using tax havens here in Colorado? I couldn't tell you the exact number of that. I know that it's substantial. I know that the number of um, tax haven corporations in places like Bermuda and uh, Cayman Islands are very substantial. You mentioned the uh, Ugland House that had, that's home, supposedly, to 18,000-plus uh, corporations, a five-story office building that's home to 18,000 of these subsidiaries. So it's um, a very widely used tool amongst many multinational corporations. Many multinational corporations have hundreds of these set up around the world. Some just have a few. Um, but it's, it's widely used, unfortunately, because it ends up um, allowing them to dodge paying the taxes that they should be paying anyway. So you don't know how many are actually operating these uh, offshore uh, tax havens. Uh, Then how do you estimate this would bring in $150 million a year in taxes from these companies if you don't know they exist? Well, we can look at what other states have brought in since they implemented their tax haven laws. And the $150 million estimate is it's always been an estimate. Um, And it's, it's something that we really don't know until the law is actually implemented. We look, for example, to Oregon, which recently implemented a tax havens law. We look towards Montana. Um, Washington, D.C. has has recently implemented. Rhode Island, West Virginia, and Alaska have all done this over um, the course of several years. And so we just have to look at what their income was before and what it was after and also combine it with some filings that we see through the Security and Exchange Commission to try to figure out what it may bring in. But frankly, we're not going to know for sure unless this law is implemented. 
and opponents of your bill last year, including House Minority Leader Brian Del Grosso, a Republican, argues that this could turn into a witch hunt for the Department of Revenue. Del Grosso, speaking during last year's session, said that there's an assumption that companies are in fact guilty. And they're going to have to spend a ton of money trying to defend themselves on something that they may or may not be doing wrong. This echoes what we heard from one of the companies named in a report from U.S. PERG. That's a nonprofit public interest research group that came out last October. They looked at Fortune 500 companies and their offshore subsidiaries. Centennial Colorado-based Aero Electronics was included. They told us in an email the report was misleading. They say companies like theirs have legitimate needs to fund sizable international operations. Basically, they say that they're doing business in these so-called tax havens. What do you say about that? Well, then they don't have anything to worry about with this bill. What this bill does is it only requires the companies to disclose income that is based off of a Colorado sale. So if they're doing business in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands with folks that live there and not from Coloradans, then they don't have to disclose that income. Just like if they have a subsidiary corporation set up in Florida or Maine or California that does business with with Coloradans, they have to disclose that already. All this does is says that in certain countries, like the Cayman Islands, they have to disclose those subsidiary corporations where the money supposedly has gone into as a result of business to Coloradans. So if somebody has a legitimate operation set up and, and selling to folks that live in Bermuda, then that's great. This bill doesn't affect them. And we did hear from multiple companies, including Newport Mining, Level 3 Communications, both based in Colorado, that they have business operations in places like Singapore. In the case of Newport Mining, they say they have a mine there. So is the U.S. PERG report that you based some of your testimony on last session possibly dubious? Because they're in this, they're in this report. Well, there's no way for me to take a look at a particular subsidiary corporation set up in a particular tax haven and say it's legitimate or not, uh, because that's proprietary information, that's confidential information. So unless they choose to disclose it, I couldn't tell you that Corporation X in the Cayman Islands is a shell corporation or a legitimate corporation. But what I can tell you is that there's tens of thousands of shell corporations that are set up in tax havens. Uh, You mentioned the Uglin House again. Um, that shows, of course, when you have one building that hosts 18,000 corporations, you know that they're not legitimate. Another example I'll give you is the island country of Bermuda. Um, If you add up all the profits that are attributed to um, the corporations that are incorporated there in Bermuda, it equals about $94 billion. The entire economy of Bermuda is $6 billion. So that's about a 1,600% difference. We know that's just not possible for all of them to be legitimate. Representative Kevin Priola, a Republican who represents parts of Adams and Arapahoe counties, said during last year's House debate on your bill that companies, they may just leave Colorado and take jobs with them. Well, I argue that companies will simply say, look, we're tired of dealing with the tax burden in the state of Colorado. We already pay through the nose for property tax for our offices or our manufacturing. We already have to deal with business personal property tax and other issues. You know what? We're just not going to have any presence in the state of Colorado. If you're going to be one of the few states that tries to go down this road and uh, somehow argue that because we contract with an affiliated affiliate offshore, that now you, we owe you X amount of dollars in addition. We're simply pulling out of the state of Colorado. What is your response to that? Well, I have problems with that for a couple of reasons. Number one, it presupposes that companies are going to pull out when you tell them that they need to pay taxes when they're already required to pay those taxes. 
But more importantly, number two, it has nothing to do with geography. It has everything to do with who's doing business here in Colorado. You could have a business based in Maryland or California or wherever that's doing business in Colorado, and they're required to, like everybody else, pay taxes on sales of goods and services in Colorado. If there's a market for a good or a service in Colorado, some company is going to step up to fill that market. And it may not be the company that's based in Maryland. It may be a small business that's based in Colorado. But nobody's going to move out of Colorado. You could have corporations that are based here that don't really do business with Coloradans. They're not going to be affected by this bill. It's only companies that are doing business in the state of Colorado. And if they choose not to make the sale, somebody else is going to choose to make the sale because the market is there. And other states have done things similar that you're, you're, you're looking at in your bill. Oregon and Montana have enacted similar legislation. What happened in those states? Well, Oregon and Montana in particular have shown uh, more robust growth since they enacted their tax havens. Um, uh, Montana uh, enacted theirs, I think, in the 1990s, early 1990s, and Oregon was just very recently. And when you compare economic growth to the rest of the nation, it's better than the rest of the nation. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's why their economy is better than the rest of the nation, but I think it shows you that companies aren't moving out. They're still doing business there. Why isn't this simply a federal issue? Well, the federal government could do something about it, um, but it would mainly be about federal taxes. What what we are dealing with here is Colorado taxes, which we can do. We're the state of Colorado, and we can impose our taxes, and, and we can impose the rules around collecting those taxes as well. So I think the federal government could get involved with this. They have not up to this point, but certainly states can and have. There have been five states in Washington, D.C. that have done it. The makeup of Colorado's legislature hasn't changed from last session. What makes you think this bill will move forward this year when it failed last year? Well, I hope it does. I couldn't say one way or another whether or not it's going to. I do know one thing. If you don't try, it's not going to go forward. And we think this is a very good bill to bring forth. We believe in leveling the playing field. We believe in tax fairness. Um, and uh, we think the state needs a lot more of those things. And so um, it's a good bill to bring forth. If it doesn't pass this year, then hopefully we'll bring it forth next year. Many good bills take multiple years before they can pass. Representative, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Democrat Mike Foote represents Longmont in the Colorado State House of Representatives. We reached out to all of the Colorado-based companies that were named in the U.S. PERG report to find out whether they really do have tax havens. We've posted some of those responses at cprnews.org. We can also find a link to the report. Up next, the science behind preparing for the next so-called megaquake like the one that rocked Nepal last year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, in for Ryan Warner. Colorado scientists stepped into action last April when a 7.8 magnitude earthquake rocked Nepal, killing thousands. Roger Billum was among the scientists who caught the first flight to Kathmandu to study the quake and its aftermath. The seismologist works at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Studies, rather environmental sciences, at CU Boulder. You know, it's really scary. We know earthquakes as big as 8.6 have occurred in the Himalaya. There's no reason why one with that magnitude could not occur in the next 10 years or the next 10 minutes. Billum and others share their findings in a new Nova documentary called Himalayan Megaquake. It debuts tomorrow night on PBS. Chris Chris Schmidt is the senior producer on the film. He joins us now from Boston. Welcome, Chris. Hi, how are you? Doing fine. So this film has been a year in the making, but I understand you could have finished it a lot sooner. Why did it take so long? 
Well, we typically try to finish our films well before the air date. Um, but in this case, I think what you're referring to is the is the fact that we sometimes do what we call quick turnaround films, mm-hmm. where we'll make a film in quick response to an event and put them on the air faster than we normally would. Uh, in this case, we set out to do that with this film, thinking that you know a few weeks after the earthquake, we'd put a film on that would explain what happened. And what we found quickly through Roger Billum and the other scientists was that there was a larger story potentially unfolding and that it was uh, it was it was better for us to sort of wait and to try to tell a more detailed story than just recount the events of the of the actual earthquake. So we let it play out a bit. And there were similar documentaries that appeared in England, correct, that came out much sooner, right? Sure. Uh, we sometimes partner with, with uh, other production entities who want to pool resources to put a film together. And in this case, we partnered with Sky TV, a British company, because they had people on the ground there already. So they provided to us uh, immediate footage of the immediate aftermath and user-generated um, video from the earthquake itself and human interest stories, the people who actually survived the earthquake and were pulled out of the rubble and so forth. And then we took that and incorporated it into the larger science story, which is what we do best at NOVA and what we, we were trying to put this earthquake into the larger context of megaquakes around the world. It becomes clear, Chris, throughout this NOVA documentary that there are lots of ways that scientists collect data, including through social media. How did social media factor into learning about this earthquake? You know, this is really, for me, one of the most exciting things, um, and we've seen this in several films we've done lately, uh, exciting things about the science process and how it's evolving in our interconnected age. So in this case, the, um, the, the, you know, there are, there are seismographs all over the world, and the U.S. Geological Survey uh, monitors them. And so when the earthquake began, and it lasted about a minute, I think, of, of intense shaking, when the earthquake began, of course, these instruments started to record the data. And according to their protocol, they send that data eventually to the uh, USGS offices back in the United States, and their scientists evaluate and try to determine what happened. Well, in this case, uh, Roger Billum and others um, were were alerted to the fact that the earthquake was happening because of social media. In other words, people who were experiencing the earthquake at the moment began tweeting, and that spread like lightning. And so Really, almost before the shaking stopped, people were getting an indication that there were earth, there was an earthquake underway in Nepal. And in rural areas of Nepal, there was no equipment to tell scientists how bad the shaking was. So Roger Billum enlisted the help of a helicopter and a photographer named David Brashear. And in a clip here, the documentary shows them as they fly over rural villages to assess damage. We needed to get out here quickly because in the days following an earthquake, people already start cleaning up. You don't leave a pile of rubble in your front yard. So we lose some of the clues that we need to understand why the buildings fell down. They maneuver close to villages so David can shoot high-resolution photos. What was Roger Billum able to learn when he looked at those photos? Well, I mean, how great is that? The, the idea that science is not just about instrumentation, uh, recording digital information and analyzing it, but that it there's a kind of a natural history uh, aspect to this sort of science inquiry. It's almost like studying a, an animal in the wild. That these guys are very creative, and they understood that there were other ways to get a a, a picture of what happened during the earthquake than just through these sort of seism, uh, seismometers. So essentially, what they did was they they went around and they took high resolution photos. And David Brashears, who's a well known Everest climber and uh, uh, and mountaineer in his own right, 
had already cataloged a lot of images of the area because he spent many, many years there. So they were able to compare recent photos with um, with other photos that he had in order to assess damage. Now, they actually did that in two ways. In some cases, they were able to uh, assess geological damage by, for example, looking at ridgelines along uh, the Himalayan mountains to see changes that would indicate, for example, where the massive avalanche began that came down and crashed down into the valley floor just above base camp. But they also used that, um, that, that technique to photograph villages without necessarily having any prior images, but then measure the kind of damage that they could see and analyze against the types of structures and then compare that to a scale that had already been developed that basically said, you know, if you see plates on the ground, it means it was a, you know, earthquake level five on the Richter scale or, or, or whatnot. And so by piecing together all this data, they were able to actually forensically kind of tell the story of what happened in these remote places. And, and John Galetska is another Colorado scientist featured in the Himalayan Megaquake documentary, which airs on PBS tomorrow night. He's with a Boulder nonprofit that facilitates geoscience research and education. Here's a clip where he's talking about a meter that moved a half, a meter and a half from where it was 10 days before. The earthquake happened, so seismic waves, and then seismic waves and the tectonic uh, movement, the, the plate shifting, and then the antenna settled to where it is right now. This GPS station and others didn't move as much as expected because the earthquake only ruptured the lower, deeper part of the fault. What does he mean by the GPS stations didn't move as much as expected? Well, many scientists, including Roger Billum, have predicted for quite a while that the region was due for another big earthquake. And this is based on the historical record, the the frequency that we know these things sort of happen. It's also based upon understanding how much pressure the Indian subcontinent, uh, the the tectonic plate that's floating on the top of the mantle of the earth, is moving into the Asian plate. And you know, this, the, these land masses are actually physically creeping along, and the scientists are able to measure how many millimeters or centimeters per year these things are supposed to move or trying to move. And when they don't move, when they get stuck or hung up at the junction point, which is right along this fault line, they can measure how much energy is being stored without being released through movement. So their analysis had told them that there was a lot of energy being stored for many, many years along this fault line, and that when it eventually slipped there was the potential to release possibly all of that energy. Hmm. And if that had happened, it would have led to a much bigger earthquake. So they can't tell how much the slip is going to um, release, and they can't tell how how far along the fault line the slip will happen. They can sort of just paint a worst-case scenario. So when they were able to analyze this and see it was a 7.8 earthquake on the Richter scale, they thought, some of them thought, Roger Billum included, that it potentially could have been at least twice as, as as powerful and that that indicated that there was still energy pent up that could still be released in another earthquake or through aftershocks. So John Galetska, when he looks at his his stationary GPS instrument and he sees it's moved a huge amount, he can still say, well, you know, if we, if we had released all of the energy, it would have moved even more. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. I hope you all watch. Yeah, Chris Schmidt is a senior producer for Nova. Himalayan Megaquake debuts at 8 p.m. tomorrow night on PBS. For a trailer, visit cprnews.org. When we come back, why some cross-country skiers in Crested Butte are annoyed by fat tire bikes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This weekend, hundreds of cyclists will take over Crested Butte's cross-country ski trails for the inaugural Fat Bike World Championships. Those are the bikes with the huge tires that look like motorcycles without engines. They're rising in popularity, but not everyone likes them, especially cross-country skiers. David Ock straddles this conflict as an avid Nordic skier and fat biker. He's an organizer of the Fat Bike World Championships and director of the local Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, what's it like to be on one of these fat bikes? You know, it's a pretty amazing experience. Um, it's very condition-dependent, and that's part of uh, the issue that uh, some Nordic skiers are, are seeing out there. However, um, with the right conditions and uh, the right bicycle and the right uh, instruments, it is one very fun experience. So you can kind of go anywhere, like an off-road 4x4 vehicle, right? In many ways, yes. I mean, we are very dependent on other users, which lends, again, to the whole Nordic um, uh, collaboration, if you will. We mm-hmm. are very dependent on either snowmobile tracks or snowshoes or even skiers punching the way through the snow first. But from there, yes, there's a lot of opportunity for a fat bike to get around in the backcountry. So where do you ride your bike in Crested Butte? You know, a little bit of everything. I mean, it's obviously a great townie for getting around this town, and uh, Crested Butte is very well known for um, almost having more bikes than cars and locals get around very much uh, via bicycle. It's a great way to get around. It's a great way to get to the trailhead or to the bus stop to go skiing. Um, it's a great way to get your groceries and be a lot safer on some pretty slick or powder-filled streets. Um, on top of that, it's a, a great way to get into the, our beloved backcountry where we often ride our bikes in the summer. So fat bike cyclists are going to take over the town and the trails around Crested Butte for the inaugural Fat Bike World Championship starting this week. What are these going to be like? I think it's going to be fantastic. I mean, fat bikers generally are a pretty colorful gang, and we're hoping to see a lot of costumes and color. Um, we're also hoping to see some first-class racing. We do have some pro athletes coming, some pro uh, road riders, uh, some legends and Dave Weens and Travis Brown, and we're very excited about that. We're very excited to be collaborating with the Nordic Center and being able to use these trails for a one-day opportunity for, the, for some of these races. And uh, we're excited to get out and ride some terrain that we normally can't use. But, you know, we, we, as we mentioned at the beginning, the, the bike, bikes have kind of ruffled some feathers, especially with cross-country skiers that use these trails. Why aren't they happy about these fat bikes? You know, a lot of that is also being the new kid on the block. It's, in many ways, it's a lot like snowboarding was in the late 80s when they were the new guys coming to the ski resorts and weren't exactly uh, welcomed very warmly by other users. Hmm. I think it's coming around with the Nordic skiers. And at the same time, like many other users, you could be doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. If it's a warm day and somebody's out there on Nordic trails and they're punching through the snow and making a two- or three-inch rut, then sure, it's not the ideal situation for the skate skier to come up following behind you and have this rut in the middle of the trail. But again, we see some very, very cold nights here and some very cold times, period, in Crested Butte. A lot of times those trails are very hard, and when that's the case, there's really not much of an issue, and really everybody can can get along good and be a good user to each other. Um, I think a lot of it's just going to be education and a little more time and people seeing exactly what these bikes are about, and they're not the boogeymen. And, but there was growing tension between these, these two since uh, the Crested Butte Town Council took it up at a work session last week. What was the mood at that forum where they discussed this? You know, the mood is generally uh, not geared toward fat bikes at all. It's been uh, actually amazing to see the community, for the most part, really be very warm and welcome to bicycles. And again, like I mentioned, Crested Butte is a bike town. We ride bikes year-round, so it fits who we are. It is our um, user group. It's very much our values and, and, and our brand. At that, um, the 
the work session was more geared towards access via Nordic trails, and it was not just for fat bikes, but a lot for users, I'm sorry, for walkers, mm-hmm. um, for dog walkers, and for other skiers who don't purchase a Nordic Pass. So again, it's kind of interesting. It fell on the fat bikes, and again, the community's really rallied around the fat bikes. It's more about the general issue of access and use. And you mentioned being the new kid on the block. Uh, Keith Bauer directs the Nordic Center in Crested Butte. He says the center isn't against fat bikes, but he said he's focused on the center's mission to provide and maintain Nordic trails. And he says it took decades for these trails to evolve, and now fat bikes kind of want to piggyback, like you said, on the hard work for immediate access. Do fat bikers want too much too soon? You know, that, that, that's a great point, and we are very grateful to work with Keith and the Nordic Center. They have been great to work with. They have provided us amenities to put on races and have events like this, and that's been fantastic. Um, I think there is some uh, maybe warming up to do on both ends, and at the same time, fat bikes don't want to take over all the Nordic trails. The main point is access and, and, and being able to get used to the drainages and the areas that we do love to access and love to recreate in, and some of that comes from the public lands, in many cases, that the Nordic Center shares and provides access with. So that's the, that's the request, if you will, is to be able to create those opportunities to get that access. And, and David, you, you straddle both lines, like we talked about earlier. You cross-country ski and you fat bike. What are you doing to bring these two worlds closer together? You know, I think it's a lot of uh, just that. You know, sometimes the conditions dictate Nordic skiing is the right tool for the job, and sometimes maybe it hasn't snowed for a week or two, and it's been high-pressure, bluebird days, and pretty sunny. And you know what? The fat bike is the right tool for the job. And a lot of people, again, um, you know, like to make circles year-round, and being able to get on a fat bike and, and ride from your back door is a great amenity and a great opportunity. What do you expect to see happen with fat biking in Crested Butte, and for that matter, in Colorado in the coming years? You know, I think time is just going to be uh, an ally here. And again, Colorado as a whole is a very, very um, cycling-friendly and cycling-adamant state. And I think it's just going to, uh, they're going to come together. And that's what I hope would be the future. I think in many ways when there is a new user, it just takes a little bit of time for that new user to kind of, I don't want to say infiltrate, but I guess be accepted by the other user groups. And I think a lot of that, again, is education, advocacy, and putting on events like we're having here. Our summit on our second day of the event, the Regional Fat Bike Summit, is a great opportunity. We're excited to have Keith Bauer. We're excited to have the Forest Service, the BLM, other user groups, other land managers to be there to, again, all be looking towards the future, figure out ways we can collaborate and make this a great benefit and amenity to not just our community, but Colorado as a whole. So are are fat bikers already flowing into Crested Butte? Big time. It has been amazing to see the difference. And we've seen the growth in the sport and the fat bike industry will tell you exactly, you know, what fat bike sales have done over the years. But just this year specifically, it's been amazing to see how many fat bikers are out there on the street. And a lot of it is families. People are coming here to, you know, for a seven-day ski vacation, they might ski for five, but they're looking for another day to do something. Sometimes they go Nordic skiing. A lot of the families are going to Big Al's Bicycle Heaven, renting four bikes, and the whole family is going on a bike ride around town. It's a beautiful sight. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. David Ox is a fat biker and a cross-country skier. He also directs the Crested Butte, Mount Crested Butte Chamber of Commerce. He helped organize the inaugural Fat Bike World Championships in Crested Butte this weekend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Now to something that might surprise you. Many Western states, including Colorado, are in the top 10 when it comes to citizens who die at the hands of police, when you account for population. And many of these officer-involved killings take place in rural areas. All that may seem counterintuitive based on the news that comes out of cities like Chicago, Cleveland, Baltimore. 
Kate Schimmel recently reported on this for High Country News. She spoke to CPR's Ryan Warner earlier this year. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You tell a story out of Idaho. A rancher was killed by sheriff's deputies there. What happened and why is it emblematic? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. So Jack Yantis was a rancher, longtime resident of Council, Idaho. One of his bulls wandered into the highway and was hit by a car. And I think as many rural folks would recognize the situation, he went down to ostensibly put it out of its misery. And in doing so, encountered cops who had showed up to the scene as well, sheriff's deputies. And somewhere in there, the situation escalated and he was shot and killed and died on the scene. Hmm. So part of the reason it's emblematic is simply that it took place in a Western state. I think that was counterintuitive for many of the people who came across the story. But Western states and certainly rural areas are not immune to some of the same patterns that we've seen play out much more prominently in Eastern cities. The rancher was obviously armed, and I wonder if that had something to do with escalating the situation and law enforcement's misperceiving his intentions. Yeah, that's a really tricky bit, especially for rural officers. So they're far more likely to encounter people who are armed. And in an urban setting, I think that people tend to perceive that as escalation. In a rural setting, I, I think it's a harder thing to assess. I mean, it's always a challenging situation for officers to tackle. Yeah, and to figure out what the context of the situation is. Yeah. So shed some more light for us on how Western states compare to others when it comes to officer-involved killings. I mean, it's surprising how many Western states are in the top 10. Yeah, I was very surprised by that uh, when I started my reporting. One thing to note is that the data is is very incomplete and difficult to find. All right. So the federal databases indicate that states like Nevada, Oregon, New Mexico rank among the highest for police-involved killings in the country. The Guardian newspaper out of the UK started a database called The Counted, which tracked all of the police-involved killings that they could find last year. In that database, six of the top states are Western states, and the top two states are New Mexico and uh, Wyoming, I believe, which is just remarkable. Yeah, Wyoming especially, given how rural that state is, and casting more light on what you say is not just an urban phenomenon— So the big question, of course, is why? And we may have hinted at some of that, which is that rural folks may be armed for various reasons in ways that city folk aren't. Were you able to to shed more light on why? Yeah, I think before I, I give the reasons that my sources told me, I would say not all rural areas are alike. So the factors at play in one rural area may not be at play in another rural area. I think that's true in cities as well. You know, one of the things that was brought up with me is officers are more likely to encounter people with weapons, people with guns. And that means that they know when they go into a situation, their lives are at risk. I mean, they're always in a heightened state of awareness, but that is certainly a risk factor. I think one of the other things that came up in my reporting was that in sparsely populated rural areas, officers are often patrolling alone or in pairs and backup is far away. So... In terms of security for them and and feeling like they could de-escalate the situation and other people might show up, that's far more unlikely in a place like Council Idaho. 
And so、um, you feel far more isolated and perhaps vulnerable, and that's going to influence your decision making as a law enforcement officer. Yeah, and you know, there's some research that's come out of cities like Los Angeles that indicate when officers feel isolated in dark areas,、uh, far from the light, far from other officers, they may be more likely to shoot first. What did you find out about the people who are getting killed by police in the West, in particular? What are the demographics of the victims? Well, the demographics of the victims are, in many ways, not unlike what we've seen in big eastern cities or big western cities. Black people are more likely to be shot. Native Americans also face higher risk, as do Hispanics and Latinos. One thing that's worth remembering: many of our rural areas are not and are no longer predominantly white, or they are predominantly white, but there is an increasing presence. Of Hispanic or Latinos, and always have been Native American communities, and those folks are more likely to be shot and killed by police than their white counterparts. Kate, you told us earlier that there are a lot of holes in the data, but I think a natural question is to ask on behalf of law enforcement: Are they also more likely to be killed in the West? Does it does it cut both ways? I think that's another area where I think. More and better data would be great because、yeah. one、uh, officer I spoke with really raised that question exactly. You know, do police officers feel more at risk when they're on the patrol in Western states? And I don't think we have an answer to that. Were there any instances you came across of departments that have trained, perhaps in the other direction, not that kind of militarized mindset, but one that de-escalates? Yeah, that's a great question.、Um, Las Vegas was indicted for, or was taken to task by the feds for really pretty brutal police tactics a number of years ago, and in the years since, they have really focused on changing their tactics. Now,、um, I think that's a complicated switch situation, but some of the data and some of the response to that indicates that they really have come up with some interesting ways to do this. I think.、Um, One officer I spoke with, former officer from Craig, Colorado, said that his department, his former department, really had a thoughtful culture around, you know, if an incident happened, talking about it and talking about it not uncritically, right? Discussing what would be the better way to handle that, and I, I think those kinds of conversations among police officers are really, really crucial to changing how we police. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Kate Schimmel is a reporter for High Country News. She spoke with Ryan Warner, and there's a link to her story at cprnews.org. He's been called the Godfather of Chicano Noir. Denver author Manuel Ramos has written eight novels and won two Colorado Book Awards. His newest release is a collection of short fiction. It's called The Skull of Pancho Villa and Other Stories. His work is full of mystery, drama, and death. Ramos often draws on his former life as a legal aid attorney in his writing. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Manuel, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Andrea. This is great. As we said, you're known for writing in a style Chicano noir. Describe what that is. Well, Chicano noir is、uh, is something that I think several of us write nowadays,、um, and it, it it's based on the notion that、uh, telling stories of about Chicanos or Chicanas carries with it its own sort of world and feeling and 
we're actually talking about a community and we're talking about a history and a, a cultural uh, idea. We hooked that up with the notion of noir, which is dark and unpredictable and usually not a happy ending. You really get the feeling for that noir style when you describe a scene or a character in your stories. And I want you to read an excerpt from your short story, If We Had Been Dancing, um, just to give us a sense of that quality. Sure. Here we go. The door of the bar opened, letting in cold, moist air, but I ignored it and concentrated on my beer. That's when the girl picked up my jacket and eased herself onto the stool next to me. My beer stopped halfway to my mouth. She said, This yours? I took it from her and dropped it between the bar rail and the floor. It was an old jacket, without any sentimental value, and I wanted to look at her and not the jacket. She had a small, pinched face with a thin nose and thin lips that held a droopy cigarette. Black, very short hair hung across her forehead and dripped wetly down her neck. She looked like a duckling who'd been thrown into the lake by the mama duck, before she knew how to tread water. And, of course, the story gets darker and darker as it goes on. And I wonder what draws you to this genre. Well, I think crime fiction is a, is a wonderful place uh, for writers. Um, you're, you're able to make social commentary without hitting anybody over the head with some kind of dogmatic ideology. People involved in crime fiction, the characters are necessarily going to be involved in very emotional human drama. And I think that that kind of canvas gives readers so much room to talk about any kind of issue. But the driving force has always got to be a good story. You've got to keep the readers hooked with the mystery. And you're able to bring into it the real-life things that maybe in another kind of uh, genre or even in mainstream literature readers won't be ready for. Is it ever depressing to write in this style, or is it sort of <laughs> cathartic for you? Well, it's a lot like the blues. You like the the blues for music? I mean, uh, you listen to a typical blues song, and it's the worst kinds of things are happening to people. But I'll tell you the truth. When I listen to blues music, it makes me feel better. And I think the same can be said for noir literature. You're right. There's not always going to be a happy ending, and the characters are dark, and people get messed up and messed around. But I tend to think that in my stories, at least, there's still some kind of hope. There's a grain of hope somewhere. And it's that little tiny light in the darkness that I'm striving to reach. I want to talk briefly about the title story, The Skull of Pancho Villa. You wrote this in 2009, and you say you wanted to write about a crime committed against an icon of Mexican-American culture. What led you to that idea? It's an idea that actually my wife and I had played around with for a while. We, uh, When we talk about what I'm writing, uh, we had several different ideas uh, that were around that notion of something very traditional, very cultural, very respected within the Chicano community. And what if somebody ripped it off or what if somebody did something to it? The Pancho Villa part of it was based on an actual story of the of the grave robbing of Pancho Villa and the, the theft of his skull and the fact that two people were arrested, two North Americans, and then released almost immediately. For taking his skull. For taking his skull by the Mexican authorities, yes. And so, I mean, all that is, is history. All that is fact. And so I, I just had to go with that. I, went, I ran with that idea, took the names of the two guys who were involved— and put them in my short story, 
and then we were off. You know, the uh, the Chicano who was involved in the in the theft or who was arrested, his last name was Corral, and eventually uh, the skull ends up in the hands of. Gus Corral's family, my character that I created, who lives on the north side of Denver. And they actually keep it, uh, his sister keeps it in a cooler in her house. Right, in a styrofoam cooler uh, in the closet. You often address how Denver neighborhoods have changed a lot. You show a lot of concern for the north side, what people may know as the highlands now. I think of stories like Neighborhood Watch and even the skull of Pancho Villa as examples what is it about neighborhoods, and particularly these Denver neighborhoods, that interest you? Well, Denver's my home. I've lived here for decades. Um, my wife and I have lived in the north side of Denver for going close to 40 years now. So we've seen tremendous changes. And uh, in terms of drama, in terms of conflict, you know, this is a great starting point. The changes that go on in Denver, that are going on in Denver, that exist today— uh, create drama. I mean, the the people who are affected by it, good or bad, they're living through these uh, these changes. Gentrification in a lot of these neighborhoods. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so people are being moved out. Uh, people are moving in. And when I rock, walk around my neighborhood, I see this firsthand. How do you see the change? Oh, it's good and bad. I mean, where I live is right in the heart of what's going on in Lohi. And... Um, all the things that uh, you may have heard about are true. I mean, traffic, property taxes, congestion, no respect for the history of the of the community, developers who are bottom line. All that kind of stuff is true. On the other hand, you know, there's a certain vibrancy to the community. There are some pretty good restaurants. But for me, a person who's lived in that neighborhood for decades, it's not a change that I totally appreciate these things happening, but it's change, and change is always going to continue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Denver novelist Manuel Ramos. He writes what he calls Chicano Noir, and his latest book is a collection of short fiction titled The Skull of Pancho Villa and Other Stories. In the story White Devils and Cockroaches, you write about an attorney named Gonzalez. No first name, just Gonzalez. And I'll have you read the first few paragraphs of that story. Gonzalez made a living representing crazies, weirdos, misfits, losers, and plain folks who got taken. A damn good legal aid lawyer, ace attorney for the underdog, a craftsman in the courtroom with a bit of magician in his blood. That image had kept him at legal aid past the usual tour of duty. Each morning he reminded himself he was not a burned-out liberal who took up space on legal aid's payroll. <laughs> and you have other stories about attorneys as well. Um, were you a burned-out attorney? Well, being a legal aid lawyer is, is, uh, is an experience that is truly very different from what you would think of as a typical lawyer's existence. The people who come in walk into a legal aid office and want help are often very desperate. It's a crisis in their lives. They're the victims of domestic abuse or they're losing their housing or they have mental health issues or they have just regular health issues and can't access the care that they need. So these people who come in seeking our help are at the end of their rope. And when you deal with that day after day after day, it's going to have an effect on you. Uh, I was a legal aid lawyer and I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. There did come a time when I felt that I was um, 
running on fumes. And that's when I returned to writing. I had uh, been a writer as a kid and through college, but when I went to law school, that stopped. And eventually I got back to it, and the first thing I wrote about was a burned-out Chicano lawyer, of all things. Well, the term Chicano essentially describes someone of Mexican descent and U.S. birth. It's also gained political implications since the 1960s. Some would say it's a chosen identity, that you pick it. So by intentionally labeling yourself and your work Chicano, what kind of message are you trying to send? Oh, I, I'm not really a messenger. Um, but Chicano is the way I identify. I mean, that started for me in college, undergraduate, when I was up at Colorado State University. And uh, many of us were involved in what was called the Chicano movement at the time. And this was a nationwide effort to fight for the civil rights of Mexican-Americans who were born and raised in the United States. Uh, it went from the farm workers' struggle to voting rights to educational issues to health care issues, immigration. All of that was involved in the movement, and people who were active in it saw themselves as people who were trying to make a change for the better. And I think people who still assert that they're Chicanos or Chicanos are very proud of that. And I'm very proud of that history. I think we did a lot of good and made some changes. Not that things are totally fixed today, but uh, good work was done. Manuel, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Andrea. This is fun. Denver lawyer-turned-author Manuel Ramos has won two Colorado Book Awards. His latest work is called The Skull of Pancho Villa and Other Stories. Ramos spoke with CPR's Andrew Dukakis, and you can read an excerpt of his book at cprnews.org. And finally today, a song I just can't get out of my head, and it comes surprisingly from Denver's Regional Transportation District. Set fire to your hair Poke a stick at a grizzly bear Eat medicine that's out of date Use your private parts as piranha bait Dumb ways to die So many dumb ways to die This song is called Dumb Ways to Die. It's a lightheartedly gruesome safety campaign for Metro Denver's transit system. In it, jelly bean-shaped cartoon characters make bad moves, like chasing a balloon onto the train tracks. But behind all this is a serious issue. Last year, there were 49 auto and pedestrian accidents along light rail lines and three deaths. RTD spokesman Scott Reed says the hope is people listen. We are continually and increasingly distracted society. Everything from people listening to music on their headphones, not paying attention, scrolling through or sending texts, talking on their cell phones. And it's amazing how many people walk into the side of a train that is passing and get knocked backwards uh, or step directly in front of a train. And hopefully the train operator will be able to stop in time. He admits some people might view the campaign as a bit harsh, but the aim is to get people to think twice around buses and rail as the transit system and the metro population grows. The campaign got its start in Australia, where millions of people saw the video. And you can see it, too, and share your thoughts on the new campaign at CPRnews.org. Stand on the edge of the train station platform. Drive around the boom gets at a level crossing. Run across the tracks between the platforms. They may not rhyme, but they're quite possibly the dumbest ways to die. 
And that's our show for this Tuesday. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.